Good morning, everyone. Really, uh, really good to uh, be here at first service because normally Kathy and I are at second service and uh, we don't get to see a lot of you. So uh, great to see you and uh, thanks for being here this morning. I, uh, I've got a whole thick wad of notes here. It's not notes, it's a script. Because the thought seized me this week somewhere along the line, what if I get COVID Saturday night and I can't come to church Sunday and what would we do? And, uh, and so I, I wrote out the whole sermon word for word. I never do that. Uh, so that's why the, there's so many notes here. But I'll try not to read them most of the time. Uh, and I want to talk this morning about uh, a great uh, passage in Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3, and we'll look at that in a moment. I welcome uh, the folks who are watching online. Probably, I guess you're watching next week, the 16th of January, and, uh, but we're all going to just get into the Word and worship and learn, learn together. So uh, uh, let me pray a brief prayer, and then we'll begin. Dear God in heaven, we have tasted the pleasure and the beauty of treasuring you as we worship and sing and think about you this morning already. We ask that by your gracious spirit, you would help us to continue as we look into the word, as we contemplate our Savior, our King, our Lord, and our treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now, we pray. Amen. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 is where we'll begin. Uh, in uh, verse uh, verse 1. It's interesting. Some of the verses that have been referred to already this morning will be cropping up again in the message, and uh, I look forward to uh, sharing them with you. Um, <clears throat> I've chosen the title and the phrase that we'll focus on this morning to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. <clears throat> and uh, we need to think about that and think about how to apply that and live that out in our daily life. It's just so important. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you why I came to that conclusion. On uh, New Year's Eve, Kathy and I, uh, you know, everybody kind of had to stay in New Year's Eve for the most part, and Kathy and I went online with uh, Rob and Marion Butler, our close relatives and friends, and we were talking and chatting and, and uh, just sharing a little bit back and forth. And Kathy read a little portion from a devotional reading that she had read that morning. And it, it, was, it contained this phrase out of Hebrews 12, 2, about fixing our eyes on Jesus. And uh, that was good. And then Rob Butler on the other end of the, of the call, uh, he had a thought about that. And it referred to an experience he had when kayaking on Georgian Bay, which I will get back to a little later this morning as we talk. And, uh, and uh, that was really good. It just tied together. It, 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 uh, it caused us to think about that phrase. And then uh, woke up on New Year's morning, and uh, I was just reading a little devotional somewhere, and uh, it had Hebrews 12, 2 in it, uh, urging us in the new year to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And I thought, wow, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something here. And, uh, and then later that same day, I ran across it one more time. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, I think God is speaking to me, and maybe, maybe uh, I knew I would be speaking to you this morning. I thought maybe that's a good text for us just to focus on as a church as we head into the new year and explore a little bit more about, about what that means. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's a great phrase, a great sentiment, 
uh, and a great directive from the scripture for us as Christians. It speaks to us about running a race, and the key to running the race well is to do exactly that, fixing our eyes on our Lord and our Savior. Um, <clears throat> it's the most wonderful time of the year right now. Started yesterday, the NFL playoffs. And uh, in football, of course, the objective is for the uh, <clears throat> next to Christmas, of course, NFL playoffs. The objective of the quarterback is to move the ball downfield and cross the finish line, the, the goal line. And often the quarterback will be passing the ball to someone downfield on his team. He sends them out. He knows where he's going to pass the ball to. And the, the job of the defensive backs on the other team is to stop the quarterback from passing or having a successful completion of his pass. But how do they know where he's going to pass the ball? And every defensive back will say, we watch his eyes and where he's looking and what are his tendencies. They study quarterbacks like uh, you're working on your PhD. Uh, and they, they know the habits of every quarterback and they know what he does with his eyes and where the ball probably is going to be going uh, which speaks to me about what we're looking at and where our eyes are focused tells uh, a lot about us and what we're about. And, uh, and it's just as true for us in the Christian life. Uh, so that's why we'll talk about where we should be fixing our eyes this morning. Uh, let's uh, have the text come up on a slide here and we'll read. I'll just read to you Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Uh, such important words. What does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? We'll explore that this morning. But of course, it, means, it's, it just literally means that. It means to have Jesus and all that he is, all that he has done, what his will is, what his thoughts are, what his priorities are, what his values are, to have that in our field of view and in our mind and in our hearts all the time. That's where we fix our eyes on him and everything there is about him. So let's proceed by talking about five things that we should not fix our eyes on, but which we often do. And, uh, and when our eyes are fixed on the wrong things, they're not fixed on the right thing or person. First of all, we should not fix our eyes on the wind and the waves of adverse circumstances in our lives. There they are. <clears throat> There's a famous story in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 14 where uh, the disciples are out in a boat at night, I believe, and there's a storm has come up and the waves are becoming very threatening, very dangerous, and they're frightened. And as they're casting their eyes around, they see a figure walking across the walking literally on the water. And, it's, and someone says, it's Jesus. He's walking on the water. And Peter, the most adventurous of the disciples, cries out, hey, Lord, help, tell me to walk on the water and I will. And so the Lord said, fine, 
Uh, Come, Peter, walk on the water. Peter stepped out of the boat and uh, actually covered a few steps, walking on the water. And then then we read these words in Matthew 14, uh, where it says, But when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. The wind and the waves can be very frightening, disorienting. You lose your way. You don't know which way is up. You're battered this way. You're battered that way. And in that moment, Peter was doing okay as he was going towards Jesus, but then he was distracted by the waves, which are real and which are frightening. And I'm not saying we don't see the wind and the waves in our life and live in denial. They are there, but it's a matter of fixing our eyes uh, on, on the Lord. Uh, and uh, I think Peter could have walked indefinitely if he had <clears throat> continued to keep his eyes on the Lord, but he got distracted by the waves, which takes me back to the story of Rob Butler out in his kayak uh, on Georgian Bay. Uh, he and some of his friends like to get out on the big water and have a challenge. Personally, I think there's something wrong with those guys, but we'll leave that for another, another message. Uh, But uh, he tells the story of one time when they were quite some distance from land. Land was in sight. They always would keep land in sight. And uh, the waves were getting big, like really big. And you're going up and you're going down. And and he said they were getting frightened. And, uh, And he said, all I remember, John, is I found a spot on shore, on land. I think it actually was a lighthouse. I think it was a little cove or cove island lighthouse up off of Tobermory there, <clears throat> and he said, he said, I put my eyes on that lighthouse and I did not look at the waves. I didn't look to the left or to the right. We just kept going and paddling steadily toward it. And he credits that with actually saving their lives on that occasion. And, uh, and I thought, what a, what a great picture of uh, fixing our eyes on a fixed point in the midst of the waves of life. And let us remember that you and I, when we do that, we're fixing our eyes on someone who can walk on the waves and walk and triumph over the circumstances, the adverse circumstances of your life. The waves of your life might have something to do with uh, your health, might have something to do with your finances, or your relationships, something going on in your home or on your job, something difficult. And those waves are real. We're not living in denial. They are real. But get that fixed point in you to, with a reference point by which you deal with all the other frightening and confusing and disorienting things in our life. Because they're there, and they'll always be there. So let's learn to live this way. The second thing we shouldn't fix our eyes on are the giants of the land. This comes from a story in Numbers chapter 14, where Moses is leading the children of Israel, and they're on the edge of the promised land, which God has promised to them as their land. And before they go in, they send in 12 spies to check out the promised land and uh, just sort of see what their next movements should be and what it's really like, bring back a report. So the 12 spies did so for 40 days. They came back with their report, and uh, there was good news and there was bad news. Uh, And uh, 10 of the spies, 10 of the 12, uh, were very frightened by what they saw because 
Apparently, there were giants in that land and very large fortified cities, and it looked like they couldn't go and take the land. And this is what the 10 spies said, just uh, some extracts from Numbers 14. The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. They spread, and they spread among the Israelites <clears throat> a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are a great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. <clears throat> wow, that does sound scary. There are giants in our land as well. We are Christians, <clears throat> and we are taking the gospel <clears throat> excuse me, of Jesus into our land, into our city, into the culture around us in Canada and in the world. Christians have been given the great commission to go into the land and spread the gospel of Jesus. But there are giants. There are uh, very uh, ungodly forces that we face. Uh, there are uh, atheistic and immoral philosophies and worldviews out there that are very outspoken against Christianity these days. There's a very secular educational system that uh, is, is educating the kids all around us these days. There's a, there's a, a very unchristian uh, entertainment and media uh, empire out there that uh, is, uh, is opposing the, the truths and the purity of Christ. And uh, there are giants in the land, no question about it. Uh, but let us learn from the two spies. We heard from the 10, let's hear from the two, Joshua and Caleb, who are the famous names here because of their faith. And they came back and uh, they saw the same giants and they saw the same fortified cities, but they came back with a different report. And this is what they said, because they also saw God. We should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. And do not be afraid of the people of the land. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them, said Joshua and Caleb. The story has a sad ending because the majority of the people sided with the ten spies and were frightened by the giants of the land, took their eyes off the Lord, and they were doomed to wander 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't take action to go in on that occasion. Do you know someone in your life who's like Joshua or like Caleb who sees the Lord and sees the Lord as being even bigger than the giants of the land? Uh, hang around that person. Please do. And let them feed your faith and strengthen you in the uh, task that we have before us. The third thing that we should not fix our eyes upon, this gets more personal, is our own sins and failures. <clears throat> Oh boy. <clears throat> How we can become obsessed with our own sins and failures, concluding, I'm worthless, I'm not a very good Christian, I can't do it, I've let the Lord down again, you know, all, the, all that type of thinking. And we beat ourselves up with our own sins. And, uh, and it's not necessary for a Christian I'm not saying ignore your sins, and I'm not saying trivialize your sins, and I'm not saying they're not real. But the point is, 
Very important here and very clear. <clears throat> we must remember how forgiven we are because of what Christ did for us on the cross. We must remember what happened to those sins. They have been paid for in full by Christ on the cross. Uh, <clears throat> a bloody, hard-fought forgiveness has been won for us at the cross of Calvary by none other than Jesus. Our sins are real, don't be in denial, but they are under his blood. Forgiving how, forgetting how forgiven we are is the problem. Our sins are not the problem. Our forgetfulness of our forgiveness is the problem. And that's really important for us to remember. Focus on the victory of Christ's cross, not on the failure of your sins. Remember Peter's misery after he denied the Lord those three times uh, during Jesus' trial? And then he, he, it says he went out and wept bitterly. Those words should just pierce you. He felt awful, wretched. Jesus met him after the resurrection and sat down and had a talk with Peter and forgave him and restored him and put him into ministry and basically saying, those sins, Peter, they're covered. I want you now to go and serve me, which Peter did. It changed his life. And I want you and I, if we're looking too much at our own sins and beating ourselves up, to move to looking at Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Remember how forgiven we are. A hard-fought, bloody forgiveness. But it's real. It's what the gospel is all about. When I fix my eyes on Christ's finished work on the cross and not on my sins, his grace grows greater and greater, and I will sin less and less. The fourth thing that we should not fix our eyes upon is our own success or our dreams of success. Success is great. We all want it. I like success. I'm sure every one of you does too as well. We want to be successful in various realms of life, parenting, maybe in your career, in your business. Every pastor wants to be successful and have a church full of awesome people and, and you know, we, we, just, we just long for success. Uh, but we must be careful here. Don't fix your eyes on success. As I, as I was thinking about success, I thought of uh, three important things about it that uh, I want us to remember <clears throat> this morning. Number one is we should and we need to define success correctly. What is success and how do we define it? Because us down here from our worldly perspective, we often and all around us, it's all around, we, we define success differently than God does. And that's really important to think about. Get back to that in a moment. Secondly, uh, we must hold success loosely. <clears throat> uh, uh, if you are successful, that's wonderful. Praise God. But hold it loosely. Be humble. Be grateful. Do not rob God of the glory that is his in having given you that success in the first place or we'll be in trouble. And thirdly, uh, about success, remember 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. What's that you say? It's where Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, you are what you are. And if you're successful, it's the grace of God. If success eludes you or things go south at somehow in your life, don't lose your way. Don't fall into depression. Uh, don't become angry because if you do, probably your eyes have been too much fixed on success and now it's gone instead of on the Lord who will never be gone. So that's what I mean by hold it loosely 
and remember his grace. Let's talk about defining success correctly for a, a couple of, just a moment here. <clears throat> Bear with me as I tell it this way. Uh, in heaven, someone comes up to God the Father and they say, I hear your son is down on earth in ministry there and I hear great things. There are crowds following him and he's doing fantastic, amazing miracles, and they even want to make him king. You must be so proud of your son. And the father says, I am. He's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, some time goes by, a couple of years, and uh, this uh, person walks up to God the father again and says, uh, I'm hearing some bad news these days. I'm hearing things aren't going too well with your son down in his ministry on the earth these days, that uh, <clears throat> the people have turned against him, uh, that one of his prized disciples has denied him three times, that uh, another one of his disciples betrayed him for money to his enemies. Uh, and and just, just before I came here, I heard that he was hung on a Roman cross and he cried out very publicly, wondering where you were and why you have forsaken him. You must be rather disappointed in your son. And the father stands up and he says, you wonder what I think of my son. Let me tell you. And he calls two angels, Peter, Gabriel, get over here. He says, I have a mission for you. In three days, I'm going to raise my son from the dead. And when I do, I want you to roll the stone away from the grave. And in 40 days, he's going to be up here with us once again, and I want you to very publicly exalt him to the highest place in the universe, and I want you to give him the name that is above every name, and I want you to send out the order in heaven, on earth, and down under the earth in hell, that every knee is to bow to him and confess him as Lord. Am I clear? And Gabriel and Angel Michael say, abundantly, my Lord, and they go, to perform their duty. If you want to define success correctly, keep your eyes on Jesus. He was the most successful one of all, and it doesn't look sometimes like it looks on earth. The moral and spiritual failures of Christians, we can sometimes get our eyes on our fellow Christians, and we can get messed up. There are so many great Christian men and women around us, and I'm very thankful for every one of them. I used to just be so proud of Billy Graham when he was alive and so thankful that, quote-unquote, he was one of us. I just loved the guy. Uh, and thankfully, he did so well all the way to the end in his life. Lately, uh, you've been hearing it in the news and in the Christian press sometimes that uh, some of our Christian leaders and authors and, and bright lights have not done so well. Uh, I, have, I have personally experienced the sting of this, uh, uh, following their teaching, reading their books, being so like this gifted person, wow, this is wonderful, and then I hear uh, somewhere along the line that they have not practiced their own teachings, uh, they have uh, faltered uh, morally, uh, or even in relationships, been, been taken with power and abusing people in their ministries, and they've been cast out of their churches in disgrace. Recently, there was one, uh, two or three years ago, that, that just shook me. 
I, I, I really love this person. My faith was so strengthened by this person. And, uh, and when, it, when it happened, I was confused. I was kind of angry. I was getting cynical, thinking things like, well, who can you trust? Can't trust any Christians out there. I trusted this guy, and look what they did to all of us. And, and I was feeling that way. I talked it over with a, a few, of, few of my friends, explaining how I felt. And uh, here's what they said. Number one, we are to love our fellow Christians, but not hope in them. We hope in God alone. Secondly, we must not judge too harshly. We could fall tomorrow. That is God's job, and he is fully qualified to judge rightly in these matters. And the third thing they said was, John, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Those men have let you down. He will not. Let's fix our eyes on him, which ties in with our passage this morning. And I realized I had been fixing my eyes a little too much on gifted Christians around me. Thankful for them, absolutely, and still am. But we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we're thankful for our brothers and sisters around us. <clears throat> Let's move on now and just work through verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2, and take a closer look at the one upon whom we should fix our eyes. <clears throat> verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I'm reading from the New International Version, uh, and it uses the words pioneer and perfecter of faith, a little earlier, I read from the New American Standard, and it calls him the author and perfecter of faith. Pioneers go before. They go ahead of everyone else into the land. Authors look at a blank sheet of paper, and they fill it with words, with a story, with a message. They author things. It's, it's, the, the word is about source and, and going before leading edge source. And Jesus is that of our faith. He's the author and pioneer of our faith. He is also the perfecter of our faith. And perf the perfecter, some translations will say the finisher of our faith. Finisher, perfecter, this has to do with completing things. So the beginning and the end, the start and the finish. And we are to remember to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is not only the starter of faith, he's the finisher of faith. I have taken great comfort in the words of the Apostle Paul, who said near the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. <clears throat> I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I've often wondered, would I be able to say that near the end of my life? That I have fought it, I've finished it, I have kept it? And the answer to that question depends upon whom I have fixed my eyes. Paul had fixed his eyes on Jesus, the finisher of faith, and Paul finished in faith and strong. And you can too. The next uh, phrase we'll look at is in the verse, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. What in the world does that mean? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Did he actually consider the cross to be a joy? The answer to that is it does not say he considered the cross to be a joy. The cross was 
painful beyond understanding. It was an agony and it was horrible. But Jesus saw something beyond the cross. And he had his eyes fixed on that, the joy set before him. Just as a mother in labor and going through the labor pangs of giving birth, uh, she goes through that for the joy set before her, the joy, the picture, the image of holding that pink little crying baby in her arms, that treasure, that, that reward of her labor. And uh, Jesus sees the same thing as he heads toward the cross. <clears throat> The book of Revelation has a picture of a future day. A future day when all of the redeemed of all of history, which in its sum total is called the Bride of Christ, are gathered around their bridegroom, gathered around their Lord, and uh, Revelation pictures it something like this. <clears throat> well, not something like this, exactly like this. From Revelation 19, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I think that was the joy set before him. What he died for was that. That moment, that day. <clears throat> we'll all be different in that crowd. We'll all be unique persons, but we'll all have one thing in common. He is our Savior. He is the reason I'm here. And that will be our joy. <clears throat> Let us fix our eyes on a joyful, victorious Savior. Moving along, the next phrase says, He endured the cross. The original Greek word for endured is hypomeno. Uh, hypo means under, and meno means to remain. So when it says Jesus endured the cross, it says he remained under the cross. In other words, what it means is he remained at his post. He didn't try to slip out from under the cross. He didn't quit, nor did he abandon the mission when it got difficult. And uh, let us fix our eyes on him who endured the cross. We all have need of endurance in life. Where do we get endurance from? Sometimes we think, <clears throat> I can't go any further. We get our endurance by fixing our eyes on the one who endured for us. He's the source of it. Let's remember to do that. Next phrase, he endured the cross, scorning its shame says the <clears throat> New International Version. Crucifixion was one of the most shameful ways to die in ancient times. By far the overwhelming part of Christ's shame wasn't that he hung naked on a cross, physically almost destroyed. It was that hanging there, he wore our sins. He was covered with filth and with sin, and some of it was mine and some of it was yours. You say, but I thought Jesus never sinned. What's all this sin upon him on the cross? And you would be right. He never sinned. And here then is the core of the gospel. It was our sin on him. He took our shame, took it as his own, and paid for it as his own. Did he set up a press conference and portray himself as a victim? No. Did he whine and grumble about the unfair treatment? No again. 
When our shame and sin began falling on him, he didn't shrink away and squeal in horror. He scorned the shame, looked it in the eye, and said, bring it on, and paid for it in full and triumphed over it. He's a winner, and let's keep our eyes fixed on him. As the old hymn says, hallelujah, what a savior. And lastly, we come to the triumphant phrase, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Throughout script, we've heard this already this morning. Throughout scripture, the uh, description of someone sitting down always means something's done. Something is completed. The war is over. You can put down your sword and sit down. You can lay down your plowing instruments at, at the work of the day in the field and sit down. Something is finished and something is completed. And as we know, our Savior completed his task. But I want us to notice this morning also where he sat. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There are five references to the right hand of the throne of God in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews alone. There are 11 of them throughout all of the New Testament. And uh, the significance of this is that the right hand of the throne of God is the place of ultimate honor, ultimate power, ultimate approval of God. Total, complete. And, and, uh, and that is what the right hand of the throne of God is all about. Let's use our imaginations and do a little thought experiment one more time. Excuse me for all my theological errors here, but I think the main point is good. <clears throat> so we're uh, taking a guided tour of heaven. We've, we've arrived and we're being shown around. This isn't from the Bible. <clears throat> <clears throat> and uh, an angel is... Uh, is guiding us, and we come finally to the throne room of Almighty God. And the angel describes it to us, and we're just amazed. We've never seen something so awe-inspiring and resplendent and magnificent in all of our lives. Uh, the angel's back is turned to our little group for a moment as he's pointing out various things, and uh, I happen to notice, as I'm standing beside you in the group, that, uh, that the, the seat on the right hand of God Almighty is empty, and apparently Jesus is somewhere else in heaven welcoming people and uh, wiping away for the last time the tears from their eyes as they have arrived. And I lean over to you and I say, uh, here's my phone. Uh, I want you to, I'm going to slip up there and sit in that seat just for a moment, and I want you to get a couple of photos of me, and we'll send them back to earth like this is cool or what. And, uh, and you say, yeah, yeah, sure, man, great. So uh, I slip past the angel whose back is to me, and I'm on my way to sit at the right hand of God to get a photo, and all of a sudden I feel the steely grip on the back of my collar of my white robe, <clears throat> and uh, the angel jerks me around and says, what, what are you doing? And I sheepishly tell him, because you can't tell lies in heaven, and, uh, and he says, John, that's the most inappropriate thing you could have ever thought of to do. What are you thinking? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I, it was my phone. <coughs> and, and, and he says, it wasn't your phone, John. It was your brain. And I said, uh, but you've redeemed my brain. And he says, yeah, but you have to use it. And, uh, and so, you know, um, anyway, enough of that. My mind goes in a different direction, and I, I say, well, who, who, who gets to sit on that seat? And, uh, and then I say, it must be you, Gabriel. 
uh, you're so mighty, so strong, so glorious, it would be very fitting for you to sit there. And he says, no, no, not, not me at all. And then I think, I'm just babbling on here, I think, well, maybe the, maybe the most righteous person in heaven gets to sit on that seat. And he says, no, the most, I know, the most holy person in heaven gets to sit there. No, he says, ah, I know, God is love, I learned that in Sunday school. The most loving person, John, stop it, he says. None of the above. And I say, well, who, 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 who gets to sit there? And he says, you have to have the right credentials. And I say, what are the right credentials? And he says, leaning toward me, reverently, almost in a whisper, you have to be worthy. This makes me think again of Revelation. <clears throat> Chapter 5, it says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. <clears> they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And so as we close Let's get our eyes off of the wind and the waves and off of the giants of the land, off of our own sins and off of our successes and off of our gifted fellow Christians. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, we have been called to run a difficult long-distance race replete with storms and failures and temptations. We admit we often find ourselves looking every which way but at you. We remember the words of John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. We pray that you would grow larger and larger and fill our field of vision and that you would thereby dwarf our troubles and our enemies and grant us fruitful living for you this year. In Jesus' name, amen.